To get right into it, there are false prophets throughout the Old Testament. False prophets that are also operating alongside what are called true prophets, or those who are truly and accurately uh, communicating the very words of God to the people of God, alongside those who are saying they're communicating the words of God, but are actually false or inaccurate in what they're doing. They're doing it for themselves, or they're doing it for their own glory, or they're doing it because they think they're doing the right thing, but they're not doing the right thing. And God gives us, God gives us guidelines on how to understand what a false prophet is and what a true prophet is. This looks like it was part of God's testing his people. You can see this in places like Deuteronomy 13, where they're actually being exposed on what is true and what is false. And so he gives us guidelines for this. Are these men doing this for personal gain? Can their prophecies be tested as being inaccurate or accurate? And on and on the list could go. But false prophets uh, were someone who would prophesy out of their own mind is what the scriptures say, rather than being guided along by the Holy Spirit. They were, they were operating out of their own heart or their own mind. There are seven examples of this in the Old Testament, where God said often when he's actually not sent someone, even though they said they were sent. You see this in places like Jeremiah 14. Now, the New Testament, for us in our book's category this morning, the New Testament actually parallels the idea of a false prophet with what are called false teachers, So you had men operating as prophets in the Old Testament, to then you have people operating as teachers in what we call the New Testament. And so this is a parallel here. So when basically when Peter is saying in the first verse or so that just like there were prophets of old who were false, now there are teachers who are false in the same way. So the New Testament parallels these false prophets with false teachers. And this church, the context and audience of 2 Peter was under attack of false teaching through things like hedonism, and licentiousness, licentiousness is basically shameless morality or shameless immorality, saying that it doesn't really matter how you live because the Lord is not returning at all and there won't be judgment. In this particular case, these are what these false teachers were doing. They were saying, you can live however you want, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Whereas that is not actually what Christ said, what these other apostles said, what these prophets have said, and what the writings of old have said. And so Peter is exposing them in this case, where this church was under attack. Now, two parallel books that seem to go side by side in a lot of ways is the book of 2 Peter and the book of Jude. It seems like they use similar language, or they do use similar language. It seems like they're defending the church uh, from various things. But it says in Jude chapter 4, it says, For certain people have crept in, meaning to the church, unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. And so the main point of this passage, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is most likely this same reason and the reason of the letter as a whole. God wants his people to grow in godliness, while at the same time this apostle is pointing out there are some people who have crept in unnoticed who are teaching false things. And so Peter is writing because there are false teachers in that particular church, not from the outside, but actually from inside. Peter had just spoken about how the truth of Christ is secured through personal and spiritual validation in the prophetic word of Scripture. You think of the last couple of verses of chapter 1, what is he saying? You can test all these things. You can have all these things according to how God has revealed himself through his very word. What a, what a joyful thing to actually have the word of God for us so that we're not walking around confused or giving ourselves over to mystical approaches to God, but we have the validity of the truth given to us in his very word. And then just from that point, connecting chapters 1 and chapter 2, in chapter 1 he says, you can trust the Bible 
And then in chapter 2, he says, there are people who are going to speak wrong things from this word. They're going to persuade you with false things from this word. And just like Old Testament prophets, they're going to say they're speaking the word of the Lord. These New Testament false teachers, well, Peter tells us ultimately who they are and what they deny. So that'll be the outline of my passage or my sermon this morning. I've got two points because I think there are two points in this passage. Uh, So that's one of the beautiful things about expositional preaching is it allows me to quickly come up with an outline. There's two main things happening here, so I'm not going to try to throw in a third and impart my framework on the text, but rather we let the text set the agenda for our framework of the world. The first thing I think Peter is telling us is telling us very briefly and quickly what false teachers do, why they're so dangerous, how they can be seen as dangerous, what false teachers do. What do false teachers do? The first thing you see in the, in the very beginning of the text is they actually rise from within. That's super haunting. Look at verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Not outside, though they are there, but from within, meaning within our membership. If you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 20. Just a couple of books to your left just to the right of the Gospels, but Acts chapter 20. This is Luke's account of the power of the Word of God going out to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 20, and go down to verse 29. So we've got this case where false teachers are inside the church, and that may seem random. But look at verse 29 of Acts chapter 20. It says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. I saw an article yesterday where there was a rise, there is a There is an increase in witchcraft in Central America that is making its way to North America. And this is mystifying in a lot of ways, confusing in a lot of ways, but it shouldn't really surprise us because this is how Satan always acts. He not only wants to torment all of God's creation, but if he can get his way inside God's church to destroy amongst themselves, he'll do that through silly myths, false teaching demonic words, to where people are looking around and going, wait, we're in this together. What is happening? So they rise from within. They also secretly bring in destructive heresies. Look at the end of verse 1, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. This, another way could be said, destructive opinions. Well, I know that the New Testament says this, but what I really think is actually this. Or I watched a video of, um, I think a false teacher who was saying that actually Peter and James and Paul all actually disagreed with themselves. They were preaching a different gospel, a Pauline gospel and a Jesus gospel. A Jesus gospel versus a prophet gospel. Destructive in their opinions. Destructive in their viewpoints. Another way to think about this, destructive heresies, could also be in factions and dissension. Just stirring up friends who are blood-bought to now war against each other over big things like the doctrine of God, or silly things, like how men treats one another. So they'll secretly bring in these destructive heresies. And this is where we just understand that sowing dissension in the church is actually very deadly, 
very destructive, especially, and in this case, especially when it's about God's truth. So I'm not talking about spreading dissension among the color of the carpet or where people should park or how many volunteers we need and don't have and boy people just don't love each other here i'm not talking about that we're talking about the doctrine of god will he return did jesus christ actually die on the cross but it's just a little question that these men in this case are bringing in these destructive opinions or heresies this is the opposite of psalm 119 verse 30 i have chosen the way of faithfulness i set your rules before me rather than my opinion before God's rules. And so they bring in destructive ways and heresies. Think of this through instruction. They bring in destruction through instruction, meaning the Sunday school teacher, the life group leader, the very talkative one in a life group, a preacher from the pulpit, a conversation around coffee. They bring in dissension and destruction through instruction. Another way to see how they do this Uh, in big terms, is they actually deny their master. Look at verse 1 still. Even deny the master who bought them. They teach. They express things. And this is on the level of actually denying who Jesus is and what he has done. Even. Look at that word. Even denying the master. This, This kind of word is assentive, meaning that even when this word is placed in this text, it is actually raising the tension of the tone meaning that the worst heresy is mentioned just a few words that follow. Again, back at June 4, or Jude 4, for certain people have crept in. These type of people are, in Jude, ungodly people. It says, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So they come in, they deny their master, but they also lead an ungodly sensuality and blasphemy. They lead an ungodly sensuality and blasphemy. Look at verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. They'll follow their sensuality. We're talking about debauched lifestyles. Licentiousness is literally what this means. Sensualities, debauchery. What we're talking about here is sexual deviancy. They listen to what they say. They see how they live, and they follow them into sexual perversion. Now that kind of strikes us, you know, the blaspheming, that makes sense. They deny their master. They revile Christ. That makes sense. They deny their master, but they follow them in their sensuality. Philippians chapter 3 says their end is destruction. Their God is in their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Romans chapter 2 says, for it was written that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, where they will exploit by false words for greed. Look at verse 3, it says, in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Meaning the whole attempt of their teaching is to make themselves better, even though it will bring a destruction of faith for those around them. You can think of characters even before this, people like Judas, where you can see in how he was handling the money that he was supposed to collect. He certainly would scrape some off the top. Something that never pulls up enough for him. And they're actively destroying the witness of Christ. Now, ultimately, what they're doing is they're spreading impurity. Ethics always follow after theology. I was at a, a retreat with a bunch of other pastors a week ago, a week and a half ago, and one of the people who wasn't a part of the group was saying that, well, when we, when we talk about theology, we like to separate doctrine from, from applied theology. There's like top-level doctrine, you know, doctrine of God, doctrine of Christ, it's great, eschatology, all that's really good stuff, but it's, it's really not for people and how they live. So we have this whole other department at the school called Applied Theology where that's where we really 
try to learn and understand what it looks like to be a Christian. And what Peter is talking about and what Jude will talk about and even what Christ talks about and what these prophets talk about, what is at the very beginning is the way that you act will actually be an offshoot of what you believe. A murderous heart has a very small view of a God who was wrathful against those who take away his creation. A person who strikes back against their mother or father has a very low view about what true justice is. Someone who steals from someone else, or in this case, someone who thinks you can live however you want because Christ won't return. If you knew what it says about Christ's return, you would not live however you want. That's what he's talking about here. Our ethics come from our theology. But in Jude 18, it says, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own godly passions. Again, this is, this is sexual in pursuit. One of my professors in seminary, he was a, a biblical counseling professor, and uh, he just said kind of on the side and it stuck with me ever since. He said, uh, when it comes to doctrinal infidelity, when it comes to doctrinal infidelity, he has always seen it, a counselor, professor, pastor, he has always seen it lead to sexual infidelity. Doctrinal infidelity will always show itself in sexual perversion. Always amazed that sexual impurity is always on the back end of doctrinal betrayal. This is a very sobering thing. How you treat your wife, husband, is how you view God. How she treats you is how she views God. How I might attempt to give God glory through my schoolwork or effort or whatever, that says everything you need to know about how I view God. Remember how we set everything up? When there was a right relationship with him. And remember when people took their eye off of a right relationship with him and a right knowledge of him? And what did that lead to? But, in verse 3, these false teachers, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So this is where this text actually becomes encouraging for the people who would read it. You know, the, the boogeyman is present. It's not a joke. But Christian, no that God is not silent on the destruction that they will heap on themselves. We're not living to be scared inside of a local church, always looking around, you know, the sin under every rock or the Satan under every compact disc, for those of you in the 90s. <laughs> but we are given encouragement to know that false teachers will have their day. And in the meantime, we need to fight for, fault, or for purity of the church, for purity of Christ's righteousness, and for purity of the word being and going out. And this gives us three results of their work. Uh, we're given three results of this work in Philippians chapter 3. Their end is their destruction. Their God is in their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Yet we are given hope. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Now why do people follow people like this? You're given a glimpse of the scripture of what these false teachers are like, where they come from, how they operate. But why do people follow that? I'm sure a lot of you have not woken up on any particular day and said, you know what I'm going to choose to do today? I'm going to choose to follow a false teacher. I'm tired of the real ones, right? I want the, I want the dirty stuff. I want the wrong stuff. But why do people follow this? Alistair Begg, a, a, a pastor outside of Cleveland, has this quote. It says, people are eager to sign up for something where belief is confused and behavior is excused. It's hard to draw a crowd where belief is defined and behavior is demanded. We see in the scriptures that God actually calls us to himself based on the truth of himself. It's a glorious thing. 
And in his kindness and love for us, he actually doesn't just leave us wandering in the desert, but actually says, here's how you can live an awesome life, a glorious life. And you might see this in your own case. It is hard to live a faithful and pure life. But every step that you take forward in purity, isn't, isn't it really encouraging? Isn't it really motivating that if we follow what the Lord has said about himself, it actually brings us joy? It's not like the world views joy, but all oh, the comfort that we have in just pursuing the Lord according to his own demands. It is a great thing. It is a good thing. But people follow this because of the flattery of these men. Romans chapter 16 says, For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth and flattery talk, they deceive the hearts of the naive. They do this because they're flattering. They do this because they're greedy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is our witness. Where this apostle said, we never came here to uh, make ourselves look good in your own eyes. We never came here to fill our own pockets so that we could one day leave, but also their sensuality. Colossians chapter 2 verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental, elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ." There's a reason why pagan worlds in faraway movies or stories where they're just, they're told to be acting ungodly and Babylon and all this stuff. There's a reason why sexual fidelity is always lumped together with that. It's always lumped together with that. And Peter will get into that more in a second. Now, I do want to explain just one word that kind of trips some people up here. It's the word bought. Right, so it says that these false teachers were once bought, bought by the master that they now deny. Now this word ownership, it means to obtain or acquire. I want you to think of this like when God bought a people out of Egypt and he made them and established them. And he then afforded external blessings as a nation like provision and protection. And this should compel them to live a life of faithfulness and obedience. But instead, they became perverse and crooked. They corrupted themselves, became foolish and unwise, forgot that God was their sovereign owner, it says, and turned into idolatry and brought judgment upon themselves. These people were given general grace by God, and yet they turn away from him. We, we see cases like this in, in serious ways, but also in unserious way. You know, if, if your parent buys you like a T-183 or whatever we had in high school, it's like a $100 calculator. You better do good at math. I just bought you a $100 calculator. You know, are you people who play sports? Maybe they just built a new weight room or a new football field or they put lights on the baseball field and it's like, you guys better play like you should have earned this long ago. We just gave you something. But here, they're denying their master. Deuteronomy 32 says, Do you repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you, who established you, where God's sovereign ownership is extended to all things? <clears throat> now, the issue with this is, did Jesus buy them but lose them? Is that what's being talked about here? Did Jesus purchase someone by the redemption of his own blood, but then lose them and now they're false teachers? Or if Jesus didn't buy them, why is this word bought or purchased used? So to think about this just cleanly, what it says is that this verse speaks of false teachers as members of the church who now reject and teach against the gospel they once embraced. Members of this church are now 
rejecting openly and teaching against the gospel that they first embraced. Now, a theologian named John Owen says his interpretation of this is that there's actually no salvific overtone to the text. When he's talking about buying, he's not talking about redemption or salvation. And even when he uses the word master, this is not, this is not the same word that you and I might use, the Lord, capital O, capital, capital L-O-R-D, or Jesus Christ. All right, so there's, he would say there's no salvific overtones to this. No purchase, no blood, no sacrifice, no substitution, no soteriological language. I actually don't hold to that view of this. I think a more helpful uh, understanding of what this verse is talking about is uh, from one of my professors in seminary. His name's Tom Schreiner. Emailed him about them. Uh, I said, man, in your commentary that I bought like 10 years ago for your class, it's not actually super clear on this. Could you help me out? And he goes, oh, I actually came out with a new commentary. And I'm like, well, I guess I get to buy a new one. So uh, it was very helpful in this. And the language that he uses is this is talking about a phenomenological language, phenomenological, where Peter describes the false teachers as believers because they made a profession of faith and gave every appearance initially of being a genuine believer. So what Peter is saying, he's trying to own them and saying, these people who called themselves bought by the blood of the lamb, look at how they're acting. They're in your midst. Their subsequent, he goes on, their subsequent denial of Christ Jesus reveals, reveals that they actually didn't truly belong to God at all, even though they professed faith once. They were bought in the sense that they gave a true profession and every indication of having true faith, where we see every church has, unfortunately, people like this, where members who appear to be believers and who should be accepted as believers according to the judgment of our own charity. They say they believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They can even describe the gospel, yet we see in times later where they relapse from that and actually expose their true heart. As time passes and elapses, the difficulty may arise in their own life, and it's apparent that, they, that they're like the seed sown on the rocky and thorny ground where initially they bear fruit, but they dry up and they die when times get tough. They deny the, the gospel. They deny the reality that Jesus is coming back. That's, that's who Peter is talking about here. The haunting language of Matthew 10 reeks through this. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. They made it a profession. I saw them be baptized. I saw them invest and serve and live life within the church. Yet the knocking on the door, Jesus will say, I never knew you. That's who Peter's talking about. The ones who said they were bought are now denied it altogether. Now the lesson for this, uh, the lesson for us in this, on this first point, is we need to continue to focus our hearts on true growth in the church is outlined scripturally based on purity, not on numbers or programs. Now, numbers are great. I'm personally glad all of you are here today. I missed you last week when some of you should have stayed home last week because it was dangerous for some of you to get out. But I'm, I'm glad that we have who we have. I'm glad that we do what we do. We just published, it's on the Welcome Center and other deals, that the annual report because it feels so cool to be so corporate. But we have this annual report. And what is that doing? It's bragging on ourselves. You know, when uh, the guy who helped uh, us make it, one of the verses that we we're going to put in there. Sorry, sorry, Kevin, I'm going for this, but we caught it. We were the right. Uh, one of the verses that we had in there initially was, uh, we want to be known by nothing other than Christ crucified. And here are all the 50 numbers that we feel good about ourselves in. And we're like, well, 
that's a little, uh, let's choose uh, 2 Thessalonians or 1 Thessalonians, wherever it is, where we should rejoice in all things. But we need to be reminded that true growth in the church is outlined based on purity, meaning your pursuit of the Lord, your pursuit of the Lord, your pursuit of the Lord, your pursuit of the Lord. That's what godly growth is to be measured by. Now, praise God that he brings a lot of godly growth. I mean, know that through some numbers, but we need to be reminded of this. True growth in the church is outlined based on biblical fidelity, biblical preaching, and godliness of the body. Biblical fidelity, biblical preaching, and godliness of the body. Now, an application of this, I I think it's helpful just to go, okay, what do we do with these false teachers, though? What do we do with these false teachers? Let's just say they're here. Some of you are here. No, let's just say that they're here. What do we do? Let me ask you, those of you who have animals in your yard, a wolf starts patrolling. A wolf comes in. Rancher, what do you do there? Let's say that's 3 o'clock in the morning. Someone comes in your house. And they're going to take you. And they're going to find your wife. And they're going to come. What do you do, man? These men are from within. Now, I'm not saying we should shoot each other. I'm not saying we should shoot each other in church. (laughs) I think it's helpful to understand the Apostle Paul's instruction in this. When we first met the Apostle Paul, what was he doing? He was fighting for fidelity in his religion. And what, was he, what would he then do when he found people who were unfaithful in their devotion to the Lord? He had them executed. How does Paul then tell the church of what to do with these people? Now he's redeemed, he's saved. And what does he now tell this, these churches to do when there's biblical infidelity within the church? The executioner goes to excommunication. So what do we do with false teachers in the church? We get them out. And that's really hard when a grandma is speaking heretical things. It's really hard when a man who used to have zeal in the Lord is now speaking heretical things. It's going to be a hard thing if someone were to defame Christ and lead people away from Christ acting like a wolf in your yard, acting like an intruder in your home. It's going to be really hard to say, this man we will not count as a follower of Jesus. And we're all going to vote on it. That's an incredibly hard thing to do. Yet, Paul says it purifies the church. Peter says it's demanded. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do this. To the elders, it says in Acts 20, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. The church I grew up in about four or five years before our family started going there, so this has been late 80s, maybe early 90s, uh, the church that I grew up in actually had a defection of members who were following a prophetess down the road 
the way they were, they were set up, everyone got to give their opinion in the sermon. Not great. Um, but all of a sudden, this person kept speaking up, and they started getting a following. And they started things that were just biblically inaccurate and untrue, even to the point of heresy. Even calling themselves, amazingly in this calling themselves a prophet, a prophetess. So this instruction for us is current. Just like how there were false prophets, there will be false teachers. You and I are to understand what a false teacher is. You and I are to understand what the gospel is, chapter 1. You and I are to understand how we are to fuel each other in faith, it's chapter 1. But we also need to recognize that what these people do is they pollute the flock of God from within by connivingly denying Christ and bringing others along. But their condemnation, be assured, is swiftly coming for them. So that's what false teachers do. What about false teachers and what they deny? What are they saying? (laughs) You know, are we going to go home with our spouses or our friends and say, hey, if you don't know the entire Apostles' Creed, I'm going to call the elders. Or the Nicene Creed or the Belgic Confession that we recited earlier. What What are these false teachers denying? Why this passage is in this place, 2 Peter is an intense, passionate last letter of Peter where he challenges Jesus' followers to continue to grow in their faith, love, and service to Christ. And so Peter is addressing their opposition or their objection by validating and defending the reality of not only Jesus' resurrection, but also Christ's final judgment. He will expose evil and injustice and remove it to make way for a new heaven and new earth that's flooded with God's glory and righteousness. These men were denying that. So an explanation of how he does this, he actually gives three examples to testify of what he means. The first example he does in verse 4 is about fallen angels. He gives the example of fallen angels. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, just stopping there, God has judged sinful angels, and God will finally fully judge them. Uh, Jewish tradition understands this as the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, where these angels were seeking and actively having intercourse with women in whom God judges. Jude 6 also explains this as well. And what Jesus, he's, he's building up an argument, or Peter, he's building up an argument here of like, if God treats these fallen angels like this. Meaning in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as their wives, any that they chose. Or Job chapter uh, 41, his heart was hard as stone, hard as the lower millstone. He builds another case. You can see this growing and growing where he talks about Noah in verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world but preserve Noah... A herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. In that case, God judged the ancient world with a flood and by his grace rescued Noah and his family. You see that in Genesis 6 through 8. Another example that he builds up with is Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. Verses 6 through 8 of the text. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Happening in Genesis chapter 19, verse 24, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Jude chapter 7 expands on this, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And the relationship 
of the judgment of these false teachers in verse 3 of our text suggests that the object of God's judgment are not in question, but there is a time frame for the execution of when justice would be poured out. So he's building up a case. I know it's bad. Their time will come, just like it came here, just like it came here, just like it came here. Now, to explain these three examples, these angels, what these angels were doing is they were denying God's glory. They wanted the glory for themselves. That's why they were punished. The false teachers also, likewise, denied it. As verse 1 says, where they secretly brought in destructive heresies, even denying God. If you're denying God, what are you trying to build up? Yourself. Jude chapter 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. You know, so there's the Lord, angels, us. They didn't want to stay in their position of authority. They wanted God's position. They left their proper dwelling. And so now they're kept in eternal chains under the gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. The world surrounding Noah's call. Remember Noah? He was told to build a boat because it was going to flood and everyone was going to be wiped out and people didn't believe him and I mean, did he really, he was probably wondering half the time when he was sharpening his knives and everything else. But what was, it, what was happening here? These people were denying God's word. The people who were crushed in the flood, who drowned in the waters, were denying God's word. The angels denied God's glory. The people of the world denied God's word. First Peter chapter 3 says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. These false teachers deny God's word. As in verse 1, they were brought in destructive heresies. Verse 2 says that they were leading others and believing themselves that the way of truth is offensive. And in verse 3, they were using false words to do this. And likewise, prophets of old, these false teachers today were claiming something beyond the word of God and calling the people to believe something that is not being moved within them by the Holy Spirit. Or the cities, the third example. The cities pressing in on ungodly and fleshly desires. They deny godly living. They deny godly virtue. What they were doing, you could call perverted, gross, demonic. It's called ungodly. That's why they were crushed. The false teachers, in the same way, denied godly living. They were living sensual lives. There were liars within the church leading others towards sexual unrighteousness. They were being driven by greed and wanting to exploit God's people. But they won't be denied God's judgment. That's the lesson of this. They get away with it temporarily, but just as surely as it rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, just as surely as the waters rose underneath Noah's feet, just as surely as angels are bound when they deny God his ways, these people will be. Now, something that's to be pointed out within these passages, uh, within these verses, are the word if. If these teachers are terrible, if these teachers act like this, if this is happening, I think it's important to hear what God wants us to hear from this text. And here's what's happening. These false teachers are in the church, but they bring upon themselves swift judgment. They're in the church, but their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. They're in the church, but the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment. And as far as I can tell, we're, we're not told much of what to do here, but just that it says they're there and their time will come. Jesus' ministry of coming back as judge is mentioned in the book. 
And a bit of instruction for all of us is whenever the Bible talks about Jesus coming back for his people, that is an incredibly positive message that is so good. Often portrayed in books and movies as like this terrifying, scary, overwhelming experiment of redemption. It is awesome. And we long for it. How many of you have gone through something, a great suffering, and the the thing from your soul says, come Lord Jesus. I can't, I don't want to do it anymore. I, I don't want to live in this world anymore. Come back and establish everything is good. And it is good for the Christian. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, it is emphatically not good for you. In the same way that Sodom, in the same way that Noah, in the same way that these angels met their judgment, when the Lord returns, all those who are unrepentant, all those who do not see God for who he is, all those who turn away from their sins, or who don't turn away from their sins, it will be a horrifying day. So we should be encouraged to live a holy and hopeful life, even in the midst of life's trials and false accusations. Even in the midst of false teaching, you can go to a Christian bookstore and find a lot of muck that's not true, unfortunately. How do we live in light of that? One day at a time, knowing that the Lord will return and he will burn those books. We're to be reminded of the gospel, that we are easily shaken when we don't focus or keep learning about Christ. We aren't that far removed from these false teachers. Verse 7 says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Verse 8, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds and he saw that he saw and heard. Now the final judgment in verses 4 through 6 from the passage. They're cast into hell. They weren't spared. It looks like they'll be given over to judgment forever. Where are these unbelievers who have died? The Bible's not silent on the issue of how God will treat those who deny him. Unbelievers are taken to a place of punishment after death. It's called hell. There is a conscious life after death before the person's resurrection. And what will life be like in hell? The Bible talks about how hell will be a place of punishment pain, deprivation, and expressed agony, and it won't have an end. There's a false teaching that goes out called annihilationism that talks about hell will be bad and then eventually it will stop. A controversial chapel message that I preached at Oklahoma Bible Academy, the teachers found out how many of their students believe in annihilationism. You won't believe in it from the Bible. The punishment doesn't have an expiration date. And in Jesus' own words, it will be an eternal, which means no end, it will be an eternal fire. I need to clarify that OBA is not teaching annihilationism, but they've discovered, oh, where did this come from within our students? I actually think the Bible department at OBA is really great. But this final judgment, judgment will be given to Jesus Christ to administer, who at his return will reward the righteous and punish the unrighteous. Judgment will be on the response of God's revelation and faith in Christ Jesus. So if you doubt or wonder, what is my life going to be like when Jesus returns? He will judge those on the atom that they've placed their trust in. Whether you placed your trust in the first atom working a 
accomplishing, being related to, finding your value, finding your value in the valor of the world. That's what Adam sought to do. That's what so many of us try to do, finding our value in Adam. Or the second Adam, the one who came, Christ Jesus, to bear the wrath of God in your place so that when final judgment comes, it will be God the Father who sees the work that he's done on God the Son in your place. He was condemned to where now you'll be able to stand firmly and fully in the grace of God. Believers need not fear the last judgment, but should live godly lives in anticipation of it. Now, frankly, it is difficult to describe a place that has not been experienced by us here. But scripture, from Scripture, we again gain understanding that heaven will be ever, the everlasting home of the believer where the hope for salvation and rest is fully realized and kept. Think about Revelation chapter 21 where it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice. Just think of this. He's, he's seeing stuff. He's hearing stuff. This stuff otherworldly yet it's coming and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore with the former things because the former things have passed away that's what the end is going to look like both for false teachers and their judgment and for those, and the text says, if he knew how to protect Lot, friend in Christ, he knows exactly how to protect you. Where the crashing cube city from the sky will come down with your name tag on it. God is still on the throne, is the message of this passage, even in the midst of sorrow and pain. Thinking of the old hymn, God is still on the throne. Burdened soul, is your heart growing weary? With the toil and heat of the day, does it seem that your path is more thorny as you journey along life's way? Go away and in secret before him tell your grief of Savior alone. He will lighten your care, for he still answers prayer. God is still on the throne. The chorus says God is still on the throne and he'll remember his own. Through trials may press us and burdens distress us. He will never leave us alone. God is still on the throne. He'll never forsake his own. His promise is true. He will not forget you. God is still on the throne. The grounding of this text is in the words about false teaching infiltrating the church, but the encouragement to the church is that those men will have their day. And so he makes two promises with one great encouragement. God will punish the guilty. How sweet that is. I imagine some of you have gone to a court hearing that went against righteousness and justice. I'd imagine many of you have felt the torment of what seems like demons through other people. And you just wonder, are they ever, is it ever going to happen to them? And this text says, just as sure as it happened to those awful people, it will happen to them. But also, it says that his justice will come from those who he has deemed righteous by his, the work of his son. God will be just. His justice will result in condemnation of the wicked. His justice will result in the rescue, verse 9, for those whose sins have been punished on the cross. So we come to this text alarmed. Maybe looking around. We come to this text praying that we would have 
good and right teaching from God's word. We come to this text knowing that by pursuing the Lord, we will be blessed and built up in greater faith. But we also come away from this text knowing that all of what God desires to do for his people will be accomplished. God's glory will be brought high and mighty through the destruction of all evil. That'll help us sing. That'll help us pray. That'll help us to keep going day by day. Let's pray.